Ladies and gentlemen, November 2nd, 2023, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. If you're looking for more sanity, you can always follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, primarily on Instagram and Twitter, wherever you're listening right now, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. If you do find value in my content, like, comment, subscribe, all very much appreciated. And to get started, the issue that is dominating world affairs is still the conflict in the Middle East and the Israeli-Palestine situation. It's been a couple weeks since uh, my last podcast on this topic, it's interesting to check in where we're at right now as compared to where we were then. This was still in the aftermath of the vicious terrorist attack, butchering any number of Israeli citizens by Hamas uh, on October 7th, and so the tenor was a little bit different. The public discourse sympathy was still very much on the Israeli side because there hadn't really been a en masse uh, military retaliation, and it's interesting how these things go because right afterwards, I heard an, uh, an Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson saying, yes, the world seems to be on our side now, but we're very quickly approaching the point at which everybody begins to start lecturing us on how to defend our people and how to respond militarily to these vicious terrorist attacks. And lo and behold, of course, that turned out to be true because a couple weeks later, we're sitting here. And while I don't think the tenor in the public relations war, if you will, is turned entirely against the Israelis, it's definitely shifted quite a bit in that the realities of their military response where they're fighting an enemy that is lodged and is threaded into the civilian infrastructure of the territory that they they attacked from Hamas is essentially operates from 300 miles of underground tunnels primarily in Gaza um, and then the inevitability of the damage and the innocent bystanders and the civilian deaths that come from trying to implement a military response and destroy and dislodge Hamas from that area is inevitable is obviously turning a number of people uh, against the Israelis or giving ammunition to the people who were not very sympathetic to their cause in the first place you know and this all brings up the concepts of proportionality and then false equivalency Right. Because if you're looking at proportionality, that's what the critics of the Israeli response continue to allude to, that the response is disproportionate. And I'm sure that there are any number of valid arguments in favor of those, but they also have counter arguments. In particular, what is the intent of those participants in this military conflict? Right. Because everyone looks at it, looks at whose bombs are dropping where and killing who uh, and causing what damage. And because Israel has more bombs bigger bombs and more capability to drop those bombs, um, that seems to be the defining variable for a lot of people in determining proportionality. And they sometimes overlook the fact that Hamas is launching a ton of rockets in the opposite direction. They're just not as damaging. Okay, Hamas has launched something like 12,000 rockets from Gaza into Israel uh, over the past two weeks. And apparently this factors not at all into the calculation of proportionality for so many people. And I was like, well, wait a second. Right. It's not it, just because one side is better at this uh, enacting this conflict than the other their weapons are better they're more destructive that does not uh, the moral culpability does not turn on that variable alone because Hamas is clearly trying to kill indiscriminately there's a, these these rocket these rockets are not trying to fall they're not aimed towards any sort of military installation they're aimed at civilians so Hamas is still trying to kill Israeli civilians. That's their intent. That's their desire. The only thing that they're limited by is capability because they don't have as many rockets as the Israelis and their rockets aren't as damaging and sophisticated. So it's very interesting. I wonder if you have, if you do look at proportionality just by the results, just by the kill count, if you don't have a broken sense of proportionality in looking at just those figures and determining who is morally culpable in this situation. But that's an incredibly, this goes to the philosophy of 
of what may be defined as a just war and the just war theory, um, and some really complex moral issues that I'm going to refrain from completely diving into uh, on this episode. But another another concept here that I think is related is the notion of false equivalencies. Uh, the first time I heard someone ever mention a false equivalency, I, I for some reason I always remember this moment. Uh, this is 20 years ago. Um, when I was watching a news broadcast on this actual conflict before. And I think as a lot of people who do follow my social media content and whatnot, I'm not a, I'm not historically a super rah-rah pro-Israel cheerleader. I acknowledge some of the Israeli mistakes and wrongdoings and not always operating in good faith um, and and do believe that, you know, that they have some responsibility, that they have, it is somewhat incumbent over the years on them to take steps towards peace, just like I think it's incumbent on the Palestinians and Hamas and who's ever speaking on behalf of the Palestinians to take steps towards peace. But that that's just the general contours. You still have to look at who, if both sides have acted at different times in bad faith, well, how much bad faith did they operate in? Like, not all things that are bad are equally bad. You could look at one side and say, okay, they've acted in bad faith and not towards peace in A, B, C, and D manner, and the other side has operated in bad faith in E, F, and G manner, or however you want to term it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily balance the books on each side of the ledger, right? And so 20 years ago, I remember this was during the, the second intifada, and everyone seems to memory hold this. They seem to forget that the the Palestinians launched uh, essentially a holy war. Once again, this is not you could not claim this was in the early two thousands. The nobody even claims that the pro provocation for the intifada was anything militarily from the Israelis. It's not. Oh my God, they they killed a bunch of Palestinian children in an airstrike, and we decided to launch an intifada against. It was no. Um, the intifada by the Palestinians in the early two thousands was not launched in response to anything militarily, but they went ahead and sent in. Everyone remembers suicide bombers. Did everyone just forget about an entire suicide bombing campaign where the Israelis uh, just had to sit there while the Palestinians sent in human weapons armed with bombs with shrapnel and nails attached to them to cause massive damage and just exploded themselves in markets? Everyone forgets there was about a five, six year period where this was happening constantly. And that was the intifada. And that was in, in response to essentially uh, 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 the claim was that one, the Camp David peace conference ended without without a peace deal. One and two, that Ariel Sharon, an Israeli leader, not even the prime minister at the time, visited a holy uh, Muslim site. That's it. The Temple Mount. That was apparently the provocation. And so someone was mentioning and describing this on a news broadcast at the time and, and people trying to equate essentially Ariel Sharon visiting this holy uh, uh, Muslim temple and that that wall probably a bad idea and not in good faith somehow justified these suicide bombings. That is what we call a false equivalency. Okay, and that while you can, everyone says, well, both sides, both sides are wrong. Both sides have culpability here. Well, how much culpability? How wrong? Because you can't just you can't just stop at layer one. You have to go to layer two and say, okay, if both sides have done things that are wrong, how wrong is what they did? Who uh, uh, who did stuff that is more wrong? Okay, so perfect example right there. The the false equivalency of the bad faith or the supposed provocation of Ariel Sharon in I think it was two thousand or two thousand one visiting the Temple Mount. Okay, and sending a bunch of people with bombs strapped to their bodies with nails on them to blow themselves up in uh, in the midst of civilians in markets in Tel Aviv, and this happened a ton of times. Okay, so complete and utter false equivalency, and that's what I keep on seeing here. Same thing with in uh, in commentary to the resp Israel's response to October seventh, in that the clearly and everyone, I'm sorry, I, if you look at the evidence, the idea that they're just going and indiscriminately bombing schools, I mean, no. We're 
where do you think Hamas is? Where do you think 300 miles of tunnels that transport 10,000 rockets are? They are in Gaza. They are in these cities. If this was a normal uh, opponent that you were dealing with, they place their military installations not in civilian areas. But the, the Hamas does not do that. They put they put uh, these tunnels and their military installations on all their weapons under civilian areas. And so the idea that there's some equivalency between the clear, de deliberate, definite, unequivocal desire and intent of Hamas to kill as many civilians as, as possible, non-combatants, okay, and Israel counterattacking in a response not without the intent to deliberately kill civilians and rocket attacks and military actions that have a valid, bona fide military purpose that happen to kill non-combatants that's a false equivalency. And these false equivalencies keep on popping up all over the place. For instance, um, as we're seeing, and you know, and you're looking at what's going on all over the world, and that now part of this battle is how the non-participants in this in this battle, uh, uh, but uh, who have some connection to the ethnic groups, are reacting all over the world. Um, this is a battle between ethnic groups, as much as we don't we, as much as we don't want to admit it. It's a terrible thing that in 2023 we still have these battles, these hostilities, purely based on ethnic group. But unfortunately, that's the situation that we're dealing with, and these are hostilities between Jews and and Arabs. And that is it at some point. And that's why you see massive demonstrations all throughout Europe, all throughout the Middle East uh, of massive Muslim communities that are protesting against what's going on in Israel. And I mean, just like I don't think the Jews, the Jewish groups are necessarily unbiased in this. They're, the, the Arab groups and the Palestinians and the Muslim diaspora, they're not necessarily unbiased either. But that's what you're seeing. So looking at this and how these the offshoots of the two participants in this battle, meaning, you know, Muslims uh, across the world who ally and who are part of the same general ethnic group as the Palestinians and the Jews and members of the, the diaspora who, uh, diaspora who relate to Israel. How are they acting? What's going on there? And I'm sorry, if you're looking at which group is harassing, intimidating, threatening, menacing, initiating acts of violence, celebrating, uh, gleefully celebrating the death of the other side, there's a clear asymmetry that you're seeing more Jews attacked by Muslims, more Jews, more Jewish businesses harassed, broken into, more death threats coming from these various Muslims groups against random Jewish people as opposed to in the opposite direction. There's simply no comparison in the pure volume and scale of it, right? And I think that's something that needs to be said. It's something that needs to be addressed. So I, I you know, I mentioned this and I was looking at a few instances and you've seen a bunch of them. You can see dozens of situations on college campuses where Jewish groups were threatened and intimidated, that uh, uh, Jewish groups meeting were harassed by Muslim student groups. You've seen it. I'm just going to name a few, but you can look, find examples all over the place. Um, Cornell, my my alma mater, the kosher dining hall had dozens in, in kind of a message board for one of their meetings. They had dozens of comments threatening violence and death. They had to shut down the kosher dining hall, tell, tell the Jewish students to stay home. You can find dozens of these on college campuses. Dagestan, Russia, a plane's landing from Tel Aviv and a mob, a, a violent mob of at least 500 people shows up at the airport looking for the Jews to come and essentially bum rush attack, checking people's passports to see if they're Jewish. I do you see this happening in the other direction? Do you see Jew, groups of Jews uh, across the world showing up at airports where they know that there's a plane coming in from a Muslim country to go and harass, intimidate, threaten, and possibly attack the people from the plane? You're not seeing this. New York, 19 Cleveland, which is a well-known Israeli restaurant. I've gone there myself. In New York, you know some of the people who own it. A big group of pro-Palestinian protesters mob rush that restaurant. The police had to intervene. The people inside the restaurant dining could not leave the restaurant for hours because they were going to get attacked by the people 
people outside. You see this over and over again. So I go to my Instagram and I kind of, I mesh, I think that this is something that's worth discussing. And so I've mentioned, so to the both sides crowd, I pose the following question. This is a rivalry between two ethnic groups. Unfortunate, but that's what it is. Do you see equivalency in how one group's members are harassing, intimidating, threatening, attacking, and menacing the other group's members all over the world? Ask yourself honestly, is each side doing this equally? Or is one side doing this more than the other side? If you're being honest with yourself, this will be an easy answer. I'm sorry. If you're being honest with yourself, this is an easy answer. Yet, some otherwise conscious smart people seem to think it's a hard answer. One person DMs me in response to that post. Why don't you ask the Muslims uh, uh, and how they've been treated at airports in the U.S. since 9-11? Okay. False equivalency. Once again... Not everything that is bad is just as bad in scale, right? Just like robbing a candy store and stealing $2 million from a bank or robbing a bank at gunpoint, not the same thing, okay? So I can certainly look at a variety of instances from how, and once again, 9-11 was 22 years ago now, particularly right after 9-11 in the years following it, that there are a number of uh, that Muslims generally may have been profiled at through TSA at the airport, may have been hassled uh, unjustifiably and suspicion unjustifiably going through airport security systems. There were a handful of acts of violence, but let's be honest, anyone looking at go go investigate. There were very few acts of violence, directed violence against random Muslim Americans based on bigotry in response to 9-11 or other Muslim terror attacks, right? Also, the idea that this was enacted by Jewish groups is ridiculous. Do, do Jews who are, are there's nothing but Jewish personnel at TSA who might have been unjustifiably hassling or suspicious of Arabs and Muslims going through security at airports? That's, of course, ridiculous. Um, and so if you are look at the equivalency here that this person was trying to assert that being bum rushed at an airport by an angry mob or at whether at an airport or outside just a, an Israeli restaurant. OK in New York City or on a college campus, that that's somehow equivalent to being hassled extra at the airport. I'm sorry, these things are not equivalent and people want to keep on popping up these false equivalencies all over the place. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. And I'm not just seeing it on the left wing side of the aisle. I'm seeing it a ton on the right wing side of the aisle as well. Um, there ha there's this thread, there's this strain of right wing commentator these days who wall wall in very much in opposition to generally the Palestinian cause because it allies with so many left-wing causes also wants to make wants to go both sides wants to be completely neutral and uh, assert false equivalency because they don't want the US getting entangled on behalf of Israel and they think that you know something just like the Ukraine hey it's unfortunate what's happening to them but that's not our conflict we're on our, they're on their own and America should be more isolationist they believe the same thing applies to the the Israel situation in the Middle East and you want to know something generally in terms of uh, an argument for American non-intervention, there's an argument. By all means, you could definitely say, you know, the validity of the argument that, you know something, we've been too involved in the Middle East in supporting Israel, and then it's leading us to get involved in conflicts that really uh, do not, the cost benefit does not serve our purposes. There's definitely some valid arguments there. I think there's valid counter arguments that this area is far more strategically relevant to the United States, given the oil concerns and the energy concerns, as opposed to the Ukraine situation. Also, you know, America has a long lineage of allyship with Israel being that during the Cold War, Israel was kind of our bulwark 
in that region as opposed to all of the Arab states that were clients of the Soviet Union. So there are a number of factors that justify American intervention. But the argument that we need to disentangle a little bit from the Middle East and that, you know, Israel, while they may not be morally culpable in this fight, that it's really not our fight. It's not the craziest thing ever. But one of these right wing commentators, the guy who's, you know, actually he's grown quite a bit in renown and stature as a political commentator of the last couple of years named Daryl Cooper. Uh, his Twitter is Martyr Made. Um, I don't know if a lot of people might be familiar with the podcast Jocko Willink. Jocko's podcast is a lot less political, but Daryl is his producer and sometimes his co-host, and you know he's the more political wing of that operation. And Daryl's just been spewing this ridiculous and in, in, in trying to. Uh, uh, provide the facts that might show that, hey, you know, there's been bad faith, there's been mistakes on both sides of this aisle, that maybe it's not so clear that the U.S. just ha- is uh, has this moral imperative to go in on the side of the Israelis. But Daryl has gone ahead and taken that way too far and made any number of false uh, bad faith omissions, uh, leaving out pertinent facts and, and applying false equivalencies in trying to make that case. And he really engaged in one yesterday and in a post that actually got me blocked in my response to him. So this is how he starts off. The canard about the Palestinians rejecting offers and therefore not wanting peace is used used very disingenuously. The two sides were negotiating for years. There were progress and there were setbacks. Both sides made offers that the others rejected. That's why it's called a negotiation. Okay, it's not an equal negotiation when one party is fine with the status quo and the other party wants to change the status quo. Okay, the the line from Gold to Meir: If the Israelis, uh, if the Palestinians lay down their weapons, we'll have peace. If the Israelis lay down their weapons, we'll have no more Israel. I mean, at its essence, is true. Okay, the Israelis are okay with the status quo. It's the Palestinians that want a deviation from the status quo. They want to change the circumstances. They're the ones that don't have something and are asking for it and are justifying violence, are justifying this conflict based on not getting it, okay? So yes, whether or not the Palestinians accept peace deals, this issue turns far more on whether or not they negotiate, whether or not they take a deal because they're the ones who want a deal in the first place. The Israelis would just say, fine, that's your land, this is our land, don't attack us and do your thing. That's the whole idea here. They've said that. They've done that a million times. It's the Palestinians that don't have a state and want a state. The Israelis have a state. So no, Daryl, it's not a both sides situation. Whether or not the side that wants something and is justifying violence based on not getting it is turning down offers to get it is a bigger deal to this situation, right? So do you see the ridiculous false equivalency? And in that, if you want to look at the deals. If you want to look at what the Palestinians have rejected a number of times, he goes on with this bullshit. This tracks back to the 1993 Oslo Accords, which were the first real attempt okay, by the Israelis and the Palestinians. The Israelis allowed, gave legitimacy to uh, Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which had been a terrorist group for 30 years. They withdrew from Jericho and the Gaza Strip gave limited self-governance for the Palestinians over the West Bank and Gaza, and that began negotiations. At that time, Israel had a prime minister named Yitzhak Rabin, who was kind of the machine. He was the driving force behind the Oslo Accords, and he was the guy who was tough but fair and was going to get peace done. He was assassinated by a Jewish extremist. Daryl mentions this to somehow, once again, then, and people do this all the time, another false equivalency, that because a Jewish right-wing extremist, of which there are a few, murdered Rabin, that that somehow creates equivalency and equality in how many crazies and terrorists and suicidal maniacs are on the Israeli side versus the Palestinian side. You want to go back and do the math on political assassinations? 
on on terrorist attacks. Okay, if you go and look at the one time that an Israeli right wing religious extremist murdered someone uh, because they were, were against the notion of peace, you can find dozens of that on the Arab side from the murder of Anwar Sadat to all the pressure to the attacks to the hum to the Hamas attacks. Why do you think Hamas's the Palestinians aren't getting let into Egypt because Hamas has launched so many terrorist attacks against their rivals in Egypt that Egypt's like, hey, you're on your own. You know, we don't need to let we're not going to let in the Palestinians from Gaza when the ruling faction in Gaza Hamas is attacked us before okay go do the math go try to line up that ledger he keeps on going on with that and in terms once again of showing some sort of equivalency in how much people don't want peace he mentions that after rabin's death or before rabin's death benjamin netanyahu attended a, a rally where rabin was hung in effigy and once again not great certainly a mark on Netanyahu's record, not a good thing in support of the notion that Netanyahu wants peace, but he tries to equate the intifada to that, to Ariel Sharon. This is, this is how he puts it. This is incredible. Then when Barack, Ehud Barak was the prime minister of Israel at the time, was close to a deal with Arafat in 2000. Ariel Sharon purposely incited a riot over the Temple Mount to sabotage it. Hamas and Palestinian extremists set off several bombs to do their part. Look at how he glosses over that. First off, Sharon's visit to the Temple Mount was not what sabotaged the deal with Arafat. Arafat turned it down. He had, Arafat had already turned down the deal by the time Sharon's visit to the Temple Mount occurred, right? But Daryl Cooper wants you to completely forget about all that, to completely forget about all the details of what were the end of the Oslo Accord negotiations that failed at Camp David in 2000. Everything that the Israelis offered to the Palestinians partial control of East Jerusalem, anywhere from 78 to 92% of the land that they were looking for, a ton of autonomy. Bill Clinton, if you go ask Bill Clinton, you go ask Middle East envoy Dennis Ross and all the other American negotiators who was at fault for the 2000 deal at Camp David falling through, they're all going to tell you it was Arafat. That maybe it wasn't 100%, but that he had the ultimate culpability here. Daryl Cooper wants you to forget all of that. He falsifies that Ariel Sharon uh, uh, incited the riot to sabotage, uh, incited a riot, visited the Temple Mount strictly to sabotage the peace deal, as opposed to that being after the peace deal already fell through. And then he just glosses over that it sent off that the response from the Palestinians was a bunch of suicide bombers. So once again, false equivalency, visit to a holy temple of the opposing ethnic group. Visit to the opposing ethnic group's holy temple versus sending a bunch of suicide bombers into markets. The two things are not equivalent. And so you'll see this over and over again. And this is something that's become this prevalent feature of the discourse around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict of false equivalencies in that trying to be even handed and make the both sides argument. You're do people are making stupid arguments like uh, um, um, Muslims getting hassled at TSA after 9-11 is equivalent to a mob storming an Israeli restaurant in New York City. That Ariel Sharon visiting the Temple Mount is equivalent to a suicide bombing campaign. Like these things are not equivalent. So I just hope people keep that in mind as the situation evolves because here's the thing it's not going to stop anytime soon hamas is not giving back those hostages every call for a ceasefire seems to have no terms of ceasefire ceasefires real ceasefires have terms okay we propose this term of ceasefire we give you this you give us that we stop this bombing you stop the bombing campaign that's how it works but nobody seems to be suggesting that and the Israelis and the U.S. is not going to convince them to simply lay down their arms, which is what essentially the ceasefire request is at this time. So there's going to continue to be destruction in Gaza. It looks like Israel is just trying to isolate a certain northern part of Gaza to create a security buffer. We'll see where it goes from there. But once again, people in thinking about 
proportionality, militarily, morally, the equivalencies. Think about false equivalencies. Not every both sides argument truly is both sides. Some just say this side's done something bad and this side's done something bad, but look to see which side has done something much worse than the other side. Keep this in mind as the situation evolves. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. And of course, another aspect of this conflict we could not ignore is its impact on the American culture wars. And what the most interesting part of that is, is that certain people who implemented certain rules are now not too happy that those rules are being used against them. Now, what do I mean by that? The American left, the American progressive movement had gotten very comfortable over the last eight to 10 years of being able to quote unquote cancel people, of being able to impact, visit consequences upon people for supposed wrong think that is what has been defined or at least synthesized in the terms cancel culture, although I'll get to why that term I think was misused and distorted quite a bit. But what you have right now for the past month or so are now that certain, a certain poison, certain toxicity in the left-wing progressive movement that will celebrate certain aspects of violence against citizens and terrorism because it aligns with a certain notion of the oppressed versus the oppressor or decolonialization. They're now becoming professional and social consequences to some of those views. And the people who defended the notion of cancel culture, said, yeah, you know something, I think people should be punished for their views. I do not think that the basic tenets of free speech and historic standards should be in place. Instead, we should be using public shame, consequence, internet pylons to enforce certain societal mores and values. The people who were totally in favor of that for the past decade all of a sudden say, well, wait a second, what about this whole free speech thing? For instance, one of the more obnoxious progressive media figures, his name is Jed Legum. He's now bitching about this. Uh, he tweets out, they were for free speech until people started saying things they disagreed with. Well, interesting, Jed, let's, let's look back at your history. Jed Legum from June 2020. Just a reminder that free speech does not mean that there are not consequences to your speech. As they always say, whenever they want to get obnoxious, whenever someone comes and defends free speech, they go, well, free speech doesn't mean free from consequences. Well, okay, well, we were the ones who wanted free speech. We were the ones who wanted to say, you know something, people should be able to express themselves. And even if there are, if even if you do disagree with them, there shouldn't necessarily be uh, professional consequences. But all of a sudden now that those professional consequences are falling down upon people expressing progressive values, all of a sudden the Jed Legums of the world are none too happy about it. Um, for instance, another very liberal outlet, The Intercept. This this outlet was so liberal, it was too liberal even for Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. Even Glenn Greenwald, because he didn't believe in everything uh, about the anti-law uh, enforcement and criminal justice reformation uh, movement in 2020, that uh, he, he was persona non grata. He was no longer welcomed at The Intercept, and he left. And they are complaining that their headline being, we are seeing people being fired from their jobs, being investigated by HR over their social media posts or conversations with colleagues, and having job offers rescinded. There's a clear trend that people's jobs are being targeted now. Oh, Really? Oh, well, oh, so that's a bad thing? You're bothered by this now? Because we were bothered by it for quite some time, for so long. And this is when we want to go and look at the trajectory of American, uh, of American political discourse over the past decade. Ideas that were literally espoused by Barack Obama in 2008, for instance, about immigration, 
You could get fired for those things. If you express Barack Obama's 2008 view that America needed tight borders and that wanted to be, while we wanted to be welcoming to the notion of immigration and it needed to be a system run with integrity, if you express that belief, you were uh, uh, putting yourself up for professional consequences. If you said, well, believe all women is a bad idea that we should maintain the notion of due process and innocent before proven guilty, you were putting your career on the line. If you made any comment in 2020 in favor of law enforcement, said, hey, the police aren't really so bad. I mean, you were getting shouted out. You were getting driven out of any number of positions in academia, corporate America, definitely in the media. All of a sudden, this is coming to boomerang back towards them and they're bitching about it. And I got to be honest, it's very juicy. It's very enjoyable because I did my best to stick by free speech principles for a long time. And in being a champion of free speech, you continually got these smug responses from the Jed Legums of the world. Like you said, ooh, just a reminder, free speech does not mean there's not consequence. Free speech is not freedom from consequences. Oh God, screw off. So The Intercept trying to document this, chronicle these left-wing figures who they believe are just speaking up in, you know, just expressing a totally benign and reasonable stance in favor of the Palestinians that they believe in suffering professional consequences. Here's how they describe it. There has obviously been an effort to threaten, ostracize, and remove individuals from jobs based on their stated views on the subject. In recent weeks, the editor-in-chief of the nonprofit scientific journal eLife Michael Eisen was forced to resign after sharing an article from The Onion satirizing public indifferences uh, to Palestinians civilian deaths. Maha Dakil, a Hollywood talent agent at CAA, she was removed from the board of CAA for suggesting on Instagram that a genocide was taking place in Gaza. Numerous journalists engaged in non-political coverage, as well as ordinary corporate employees both in the U.S. and beyond have faced reprimands, dismissals over their statements on the war. That includes political analyst and author Nathan Thrall and the novelist Viet Thanh Nguyen, who was scheduled to speak at 92 New York. Um, okay, so in looking at what occurred here, for instance, my, my former guest Aaron Saberian replied, what's that? Controversial ideas are being censored due to bad faith accusations of bigotry. Students can't tell the difference between incendiary rhetoric and physical violence. That's very concerning. Please tell me more about how this happened. Do you see what happened here? These people made bad faith claims of bigotry to shout down people. They distorted what people said. They forced people to walk on eggshells in one direction that any idea that was expressed even mildly, ideas that would have been considered centrist or even mildly liberal for most of the last 30, 40 years until recent times were all of a sudden worthy of consequence. And now all of a sudden they're bitching that these are the new rules, that this is how things operate these days. And it's really, it's just the hypocrisy is unbelievable. Some other commentary from Twitter. Free speech norms were systematically dismantled over the course of a decade by your side, and now unsurprisingly, that's being turned back on you. Totally predictable consequences are what you're dealing with, not hypocrisy. As another Twitter comment said, if the left were now saying, wow, I didn't realize this problem was so bad. Let's get together and discuss some structural reforms to protect speech. Then let's talk. But nobody's calling for that. They just think that they should be protected and you shouldn't. Okay, so that that's an interesting view on the whole cancel culture dynamic, because maybe cancel culture was the wrong way to describe this stuff. Because let's be honest, society's always had standards. It's always had things that if you cross this line in what you're saying and what you're what you're celebrating, that there were consequences consequences to that, just like, you know, uh, in, in aftermath of 9-11, way before the left-wing cancel culture thing came around. If you were celebrating uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, if you're in pro-Al-Qaeda celebrating 9-11 or being a little too sympathetic to that, you might suffer some professional consequences. Clearly, there are behavioral standards that societies want to implement. But the thing is, these things need to be equally distributed, okay? You need consistent standards and you need the threshold for what is worthy of punishment to be reasonable. If what you do is the rules only go in one direction, 
only people who express a right-wing view or a centrist view that's now considered right-wing get punished and nobody who expresses a certain left-wing toxic view gets punished. That's not that's not how things are supposed to operate. That's cancel culture. That the cancellation only went in one direction and the threshold for cancellation was ridiculously low only in one direction. So Chris Rufo, who's been one of the more successful right-wing activists who somehow gotten past cancel culture and succeeded in a lot of his objectives despite a lot of pushback and a lot, you know, doing a lot of things that got other people canceled. He has an interesting perspective on this. He says, I've always rejected the concept of cancel culture, which is nebulous, foolish, and misleading. Societies have always had standards of punishment, exclusion, and exception, often for very good reason. The mission is not to cancel cancel culture, but to set rational standards of conduct ordered toward the good and enforced in a fair and transparent manner. I think the last part of that is very important. The mission is not to cancel cancel culture, but to set rational standards of conduct ordered toward the good and enforced in a fair and transparent manner. So the problem isn't that anybody gets canceled. Throughout the the entire course of time, people have got canceled or punished for certain views. But you have to be be able to distinguish between a view in canceling someone or punishing someone because they cheered on the slaughter of innocent civilians versus they said saying, "Hey, a man who was accused of rape deserves due process and the benefit of the uh, of the assumption of innocence." Those are not the same thing. Okay, there are things that should be cancelable and there are things that are not should be cancelable. We need rational standards applied equally and not arbitrarily. So the Jed Legums of the world, the intercepts of the world, they think they're catching free speech advocates like myself in some sort of hypocrisy. I was like, well, no, no, I was a champion of free speech, not because I think that just anybody should be able to say anything in any context without any repercussions or consequences whatsoever. I said that the guiding principle should be free speech, that there should be broad leeway for people to say things, but that standards of speech, standards of behavior need to be clear. They need to be equally applied and they need to only punish people in the extreme scenarios. You can't be punishing anyone who expresses any idea even mildly in one direction. If someone does something truly abominable expresses something that really shows a black mark on their character like celebrating the death of innocent civilians or cheering these things on or even suggesting that they want to support these people like a a, a New York Times related someone a, a, a reporter who had been involved in the New York Times celebrating Hamas putting a baby in an oven like that deserves to be canceled that's worthy of punishment, okay? These are things that truly do cross the line. It's not about sides. It's about establishing a threshold for this is something, this is where the line can be crossed for an idea that deserves to be punished because it says bad things about your character, not for whatever offends my political sensibilities. So, Jed, sorry that these things are boomeranging back on you. Intercept, I'm sorry that these things make you uncomfortable, but these are the rules you wanted and they're now working against you. So there's one more aspect of the culture wars that I want to discuss, and it's where the culture wars intersect with social media policy and social media culture, because a lot of people make the argument that our society, to a certain extent, is being engineered by the digital tools that we use. One, of course, being very important right now to the youth is TikTok. So if you look at views on the Israel-Palestinian situation, there's one one fact that, that is kind of an outlier that's very interesting and kind of troubling. 51% of Americans aged 18 to 24 believe that Ham- Hamas was somewhat just justified in whatever they did on October 7th. On the one hand, you could kind of chalk this up to the usual generational gap in that typically young people are a little more supportive 
of liberal or progressive causes or might be more receptive to these the quote-unquote underdog. But 51% uh, uh, kind of supporting a, a blatant terrorist action like this, I mean, this is this is an outlier. This is troubling. Um, as a, a guy that I know is a venture capitalist, very shrewd guy named Jeff Morris, uh, who was t- commenting on the topic, mentions, was like, no way that, you know, that cohort or the youth would have been that receptive to the Al-Qaeda argument or to the 9-11 attacks. There's clearly something else going on that makes this not just the usual, the typical generational divide. And what the the argument that some people are making or what some people are chalking it up to is TikTok, that this is how young people get their news. It's what they're exposed to. And that with this being a a platform that's driven by user-generated content, any creator that's finding success that 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 platform is rewarding with additional followership or that is incentivizing in one direction is going to continue to go in that direction. And that's the message that's going to get passed through to the youth via TikTok. So if we want to take a step back here for a second, one of the more significant events that I think a lot of people forgot about uh, was Donald Trump's attempt to ban TikTok or at least have it divested from Chinese ownership to U.S. ownership in 2020, because this was pretty major. I mean, this was a major step. This is the essentially the leading social media platform in the world. Yes, it has more usership than YouTube uh, uh, and Instagram. It is the leading platform, particularly for the youth. And this is where they're getting information. They're being bombarded each day. Here's the thing, though. It is technically owned by a hegemonic uh, rival of the United States in China. So uh, it's some people have different views on this, but TikTok does seem to be derivative or at least the descendant of an original app called Musical.ly, which was bought a few years back by a Chinese company called ByteDance. So ByteDance absorbed Musical.ly, which was taken off just as kind of a lip syncing dancing UGC app um, and absorbed and then became TikTok, which is now this all-encompassing social media platform where so many people are becoming observers of content. You know, they're not just, it's not a Facebook-like function of connecting with their friends, right? They're finding new creators, whether it through uh, any number of genres and categories, whether it be politics, cooking, interior design, God knows what. But the youth, where the youth are getting their values, where they're seeing, uh, uh, where they're learn, they believe that they're getting their news. It is generally from TikTok. But this is a platform that is controlled by a country that shares a completely different, does not share a set of values with us, and is in fact our rival. Donald Trump took a very aggressive stance towards that, and in 2020, he essentially laid down the law and said, yeah, we are going to force a divestiture of ByteDance, of TikTok, uh, uh, from Chinese ownership to domestic ownership. And this is a lot of thing, uh, something that a lot of people, you know, even a lot of Donald Trump's opponents were somewhat receptive to, but kind of rejected because it was Donald Trump. Um, but interesting to look back at it. So what was the case at that time for why TikTok was supposedly a national security threat that Donald Trump needed to take the step of divesting it from foreign ownership to domestic in January 2019? Investigation by the American think tank, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, described TikTok as a Huawei, and that's the leading Chinese uh, uh, kind of telecom and microchip company sized problem that posed a national security threat because the app's popularity with users included risks to armed forces due to personnel um, on the app's alleged ability to convey location, image, and biometric data to its Chinese parent company. Noticing a letter from the founder and CEO Zhang Yingmin uh, in 2018 stating that his company would further deepen cooperation with the ruling Chinese Communist Party to promote its policies and by dance claiming that its privacy policy reserved the right to share any information with Chinese authorities. 
The notion being, you know, one, that the Chinese were engineering the content and the results on TikTok in favor of their values or their preferred na narrative, which did seem to be the case, something that a lot of people forget um, right before COVID hit. There are a bunch of protests, anti-Chinese protests in Taiwan and ByteDance. TikTok went in and heavily censored any content that could be pro-Taiwan that was anti-CCP. I mean, they were definitely putting their thumb on the scale there. Uh, there was another controversy around Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey coming out in favor of Taiwan. And that, that engendered a lot of hostility on the Chinese mainland and from the Chinese government against the Houston Rockets. And you could tell they were shelving. They were promoting anti-Houston Rockets content on TikTok. So absolutely, the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese authorities were moderating, were directing and engineering the content going through TikTok, even though they claimed they weren't. They were also claiming that they didn't share any data um, with any Chinese governmental authorities. But as any, anyone knows, there's a complete synthesis between Chinese private companies and the Chinese government, particularly any company that is as significant and successful as TikTok. So the notion that the the notion that there was a separation of church and state between TikTok and ByteDance as a private private company segmented from the Chinese Communist Party. That's a complete fiction. Um, but lo and behold, anyways, Donald Trump issues an executive order through U U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on July 7, 2020, announcing that the government was considering banning TikTok. Then on July 31st, 2020, Donald Trump uh, threatens to shut down TikTok in the U.S. unless they divest to an American company. Uh, negotiations proceeded from there. Microsoft looked like the likely purchaser. And there were deep talks, deep talks for, uh, uh, down. They went deep down the road from Microsoft in their attempt to buy TikTok off of ByteDance, which would have been a sad satisfactory uh, result for the Trump administration because it went from Chinese ownership to domestic ownership. And it seemed that ByteDance was playing ball. It seemed that ByteDance accepted that, hey, you know something, Trump's going to go ahead and ban TikTok. So, oh, well, better for us to go and, you know, and, and liquidate this asset and sell it to an American company since it's just going to be banned in the U.S. anyways. August 6, Trump signs an executive order banning the platform in 45 days, if not sold by ByteDance. Um, then they go ahead. And once again, this is August 2020. So you've got an election coming coming up in November. So it seems that China and ByteDance, if they want to wait out the Trump administration, all they got to do is wait it out a few more months. Trump is distracted with, with COVID. He's distracted with the election and he might lose the election, which he of course ended up, did end up losing and was no longer in a position to force this action from ByteDance. Um, in September of that year, even though the ByteDance was in negotiations with Oracle to sell uh, TikTok's domestic operations to Oracle. Uh, they go ahead and file an injunction in American federal court. The injunction was granted, staying the executive order. Essentially, they waited out Trump, and once he lost the election, uh, uh, left office, and they were no longer, you know, faced with that decision of Trump banning TikTok or them having to sell to a domestic counterpart. So that issue fades away. This massive occurrence, this massive event with the most substantial uh, social media platform domestically that all the kids were using going to be forced to be sold from uh, uh, one owner to another for geopolitical and cultural concerns, that just evaporates. Everybody forgets about it uh, as everybody gets distracted with any number of other social and current events and Trump no longer being in office, God knows what, right? Pops up a few years later. Well, the kids are all still using TikTok. 
Okay, they're still getting all their news, all their uh, most of their political know-how narrative is coming from sources on TikTok. And that brings us up to the Israeli-Palestinian situation where the youth seem so much more sympathetic and receptive to the Hamas, uh, to Hamas's cause and to essentially acts of terrorism than any other cohort. And that perks up the ears of a couple people, including Jeff Morris. So Jeff went ahead and he did a little investigating into the TikTok algorithm, into the blood and guts of what's going on in TikTok and why young people are seeing so much more pro-Hamas and pro-Palestinian content than any other group. Last week, he goes ahead and puts together a thread titled The TikTok War, Why High School and College Kids Are Getting the Wrong Information About Hamas and Israel. Um, As Jeff goes ahead on this thread here, TikTok is the primary news source for many younger demos. And while we have justifiable concerns about the New York Times and Main Street media, this has become a TikTok war. What I discovered through data and user testing is extremely concerning and I believe requires more attention as this is an actual national security issue. When I engaged with one post on TikTok supporting opposing views, my entire feed became aggressively anti-Israel. It was as if I was placed in an A-B test variant and was told to go see this war with Israel being the evil side. As I looked at the tactics and data, I saw that much of TikTok is being controlled by anti Israel bot farms, paid commentators, likers, shares, much of which is being paid for by Hamas supporting organizations. So Jeff's investigation seems to show that Hamas or pro-Palestinian organizations are gaming the TikTok algorithm, that they are engineering results to pump pro-Hamas or pro-Palestinian content through a variety of factors and, and tactics, including bots, including paid commentators, things of that nature. Says, then I looked at the data and saw that Israel is losing the TikTok war by a long shot. As an example, the top hashtag is 3 billion views for Palestine versus 200 million views for Israel. If you look at other hashtags, it is clear that Israel has a distribution issue. Because the TikTok narrative is now so anti-Israel, the engagement flywheel encourages creators to support the narrative because it's getting the most attention and creating anti-Israel content that helps them increase their following. So the flywheel being that if a creator, if someone on TikTok already has an audience that is pro-Palestine, and is supporting that type of content, they're going to create more of that content to then push that flywheel with circles and just continue to spin at a faster and faster velocity with the same factors, same inputs going into that, and in this case being pro-Palestinian Hamas content. So some could say that this is there's a counter argument there that, well, listen, this is just what people like, that you can't control what people are receptive to, what they what truths that they believe, and if there's content that they gravitate towards more, um, if people are putting that out and someone's one side is doing a better job at lying through content than the other side is, or is being more persuasive even with faulty information, then that's just a, a fault line of the human species, that that's just how people are going to react. And, and as they uh, as human behavior kind of meets the TikTok algorithm, that's just where, where the results are going to go. Some people could say that. Um, and I think it's, it's a really tough call because there is a strong argument that this platform is being engineered, is being gamed in one direction that really does conflict with, tra- with traditional or healthier American values. But it's interesting that this is the issue that's brought this topic back to the forefront of our consciousness, particularly for people in the technology world. Another person who wrote on this subject, Sam Lesson, he's another venture capitalist, was former uh, VP of product at Facebook, and he uh, he writes for another media and tech uh, publication called The Information, and he wrote a post recently called TikTok Needs to Go Now. And he acknowledges that, you know, Trump had a point that people didn't, they liked the mess, they dis- disregarded the message because they didn't like the messenger, and that might have been a mistake. As he mentions, we made a big mistake not to ban TikTok when Trump opened the issue in 2020. He was right. It was, is a major security, national security threat, and making an exception to our ban on foreign ownership 
of quote-unquote media just because the content was user-generated was and is nonsense. Media is media. Far too many smart people focused on their hatred of the messenger, i.e. Trump, and, met, and missed that the message was right, and now a few years later we are paying the price for this major misstep. As he goes on, the fact that we didn't ban or force U.S. ownership and control of TikTok in the U.S. is coming home to roost and allowing terrorist propaganda to spread inside the U.S. and driving real physical danger and violence to U.S. citizens. If you don't think TikTok is a source, just open the app or look at the numbers. Reality is undeniable. Um, and he's saying, you know, saying something very similar to what Jeff is saying in that this this platform is unique in pumping um, and amplifying a set, you know, a variety of content or message that seems to run contrary to the message that is being amplified by every other source. And that's something that warrants suspicion and warrants a deeper look. And I think you're still, you're still, there's still a battle. There still is a, I don't think we've come to a conclusion as to whether or not the Chinese are kind of sitting there, you know, pulling the strings and operating this and doing this purposefully. But you definitely have to look at it. You're, there's definitely grounds for suspicion. And you definitely have to assume that they will be more willing to uh, allow for clearly false narratives and false information that are friendlier to the pro-Hamas or pro-Palestinian side than a, an American-centric or an American-controlled platform would be. And you can go back to the notion of social media ethics of whether or not that's a concern, whether or not that even matters, and hey, we simply need to let the chips fall where they may, or if this is something that needs to be addressed policy-wise. Um, I was of the opinion in 2020 that something did need to be addressed policy-wise. I mean, this platform Platform, the connection between the platform, the private company ByteDance, and the, Ch the Chinese government, just like with, like I said, all other major private companies in China, it's just too intertwined. That that relationship is too intimate. It it is not safe, whether based on data or messaging, right? Because that those are kind of the two twin prongs of this problem. One is the claim that the Chinese are engineering or are at least being faulty uh, or, or reckless in what messages are being promoted by TikTok, or two, that the, that the privacy the privacy firewall is an illusion and that the Chinese government or the Communist Party is accessing private information about TikTok's users. I think both are, both are issues that warrant investigation and concern. And it comes down to a fundamental question. Should we be taking a more of a, a globalized libertarian approach to these things that, hey, you know, there are some things that just transcend borders and we can't control a, com uh, a company just because it might be centered or, or headquartered in another comp uh, another country? Or do we have to be more forthright? Do we have to be more deliberate in American security policy, industrial policy, tech policy? And Sam Lesson is saying, you know something, I think we woke up from an illusion that we could be more libertarian. As he mentions, the simple reality is that we, as we leave the Pax Americana age into a tumultuous period, we simply cannot have non-allies owning the biggest media properties that reach directly into the household of millions. And he mentions the Pax Americana, that we kind of let our guard down after the Cold War because we didn't have any, any true rival. Then, you know, we, we had the issue of Al-Qaeda and Islamic terrorism and whatnot, but they weren't a state actor. They weren't someone who was controlling a big, massive media company like a ByteDance, like a TikTok, right? I mean, they had their own, they, they operated a little more stateless, a little more guerrilla in their tactics. And what Sam Lesson is suggesting is that, hey, you know something? We thought we could take a more relaxed libertarian approach given the digital age coincided with an age of extended peace. But hey, that era of peace is over. The era of Pax Americana is over and we need to be a little more protective. Um, and I'm actually quite receptive to that argument. 
Um, it seems like, uh, you know, there's a good uh, it seems like there's a good compromise measure here in not banning TikTok, but simply divesting it from Chinese ownership to American ownership, just as Donald Trump has suggested and was trying to put into place an unfortunately tumultuous time for him and America in 2020. And I want to be careful not to be hypocritical myself because I'm very, I'm very anti content moderate content moderation generally. I think that you know that what content is surfaced is amplified. What is popular on these social media platforms is just going to be a reflection of human nature. In that trying to in trying to do what a lot of the domestic social media companies did around COVID and trying to craft and engineer and gerrymander the message that one, you know, that's not something that these platforms should be doing because they're not good at it and nobody gave them the knowledge, the wisdom, uh, the you know, the moral credibility to be doing it. However, that does need to be balanced out against some national security concerns. And I do think that the fact that the TikTok is owned by our hegemonic and geopolitical rival is the the variable that this all turns on and is justifiable in being, you know, in, in taking an approach that I don't think is justified in terms of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, what have you, and maybe at least divesting ownership. Once that occurs, I think you can, you know, we can look at the algorithm, we can look at how data was being handled and allow that to fluctuate, allow that to operate within the normal parameters that we've gotten used to uh, over the, the last few years with less content moderation. But I do think that there's a strong case for uh, forcing ByteDance to divest its domestic TikTok operations and, um, you know, whether or not, I mean, hey, I guess we, we would have to see what the results are. Do we see a shift in youth attitudes on certain social and political issues after that and that the generation gap will still be there but won't be this incredible, this massive gulf, this ocean between uh, the youth that are very TikTok centric and everybody else, because that is what we were seeing right now, particularly on the Israel-Palestinian conflict. So that is it, ladies and gents, for this week. We discussed notions of proportionality, false equivalencies, and how people are really distorting what's going on in this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We talked about the culture wars and cancel culture, so-called cancel culture, boomerang and back on the people that were real proponents of it. And oh, well, I don't have much sympathy for them. And the role that TikTok is playing in widening the gap and the, the chasm and the generational divide between how people feel about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is, I think, reflective of a general gap in values uh, that is going to manifest itself even more aggressively as the youth start taking positions of power in the corporate and adult world. And so once again, if you find value in my content, wherever you're listening to this, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever, like, comment, subscribe. Um, we didn't talk much about the specifics about really what's going on and, and the, the boots on the reality on the ground on the Israeli-Palestinian situation or kind of the politics surrounding that. I have an amazing guest who's going to be coming up next week that we're going to dive into that neck deep. So that's going to be coming up, should be towards the earlier part of next week. In the meantime, everybody enjoy and Godspeed. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative. Traffic jams tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right, the Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.